Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Alan Jones. Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for being with us. Now, I keep urging you to tell your friends that they can watch us on the big TV screen by simply searching ADH on their Apple TV app store or in the Google Play store, whichever applies to them, and download the app. But they can actually go to their computer or their mobile phone and type in ADH.TV, then hit the Watch Now button. There you are. Pretty simple. And don't forget you can email me too, Jones at ADH.TV. I enjoy your views. We've got a good show for you tonight. Anthony Albanese, as I speak, is addressing the OECD crowd in Paris. I'll have something to say about that. Might be time for Albo to get home. But while he's there, he should trot off to the Netherlands and see the chaos there as a result of the climate change policies he's advocating. Just on that issue, I'll talk to Nick Cater, the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre, who will be joining us shortly on ADH for his own Friday night show. And we'll be looking at this business of the Albanese government legislating their back-of-the-envelope 43% emissions reduction target. As I'm sure you are aware, we are facing an energy crisis. This is not going to make it any easier. But we must be fully informed of where we are and what it means, and I'll try, try to cover that for you comprehensively. But there are a bunch of statutory authorities that are supposed to be objective. One of them is the Australian Energy Market Operator, 
whose charter is to, quote, shape a better energy future for all Australians, unquote. But in their utterances, these outfits give every impression of being handmaidens of government. Terry McCrown is one of the nation's most formidable and respected economic commentators. He's been taking a post-election break, but I thought we'd talk to him tonight to see what he makes of the new government. Then I'll have a look at the focus on Ukraine and its atrocities and ask why we ignore what is happening elsewhere in Myanmar. And our Patrick Cummins-led test cricket side is playing against Sri Lanka in Sri Lanka, yet this is a country which is literally on its knees, bankrupt. And by that I mean a government for too long riddled with corruption and nepotism is now in a state of complete, complete collapse and no country or organisation is prepared to sell fuel to this debt-ridden outfit, Sri Lanka. I'll also have a quick look at the most insufferable politician in the UK or to inhabit the UK, Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon. All she goes on about is Scottish independence and she's on about it again. All that is coming up. Now, we'll light a few fires. And remember, you can email me, Alan Jones. Go to it now, Jones at adh.tv. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, to those who march in the streets protesting the need for urgent action on climate change, why wouldn't they blockade the Chinese embassy? China's emissions dwarf those of Australia and increase annually, increase by more than our total emissions. The New South Wales opposition are not wrong when they say, and this is true of all governments, they need to get serious with troublemakers instead of embracing the revolving door of bail. The New South Wales opposition police spokesperson, Walt Secord, said, it is an insult to hardworking police and several nights in a cold cell would have been preferable to bailing these characters, unquote. One interesting point, surely, are these people on welfare? And if so, why shouldn't the welfare be withdrawn? But this brings us disturbingly to a simple word, hubris. Hubris is best defined as excessive self-confidence or overweening pride. Now, I think everyone's given Anthony Albanese a fair run, but it might be relevant to say, Albo, you've hit the hubris button. Time to come home. There are no prizes other than an ego trip to which you are entitled, but there are no prizes for strutting the world stage and telling the world what it should do and what you will do on climate change and world order. Now, the Prime Minister of little old Australia telling NATO leaders that his government is, quote, not afraid to stand up against threats to peace and freedom, whether in Europe or the Indo-Pacific, unquote. Well, Prime Minister, there are many realities you need to confront which might injure the hubris. It's fine rubbing shoulders with international leaders, but do you tell them when you say it will be through Australia's actions that you'll see our resolve, unquote? Do you tell them that not one of our services Navy, Air Force or Army has any strategic strike power? Do you tell them that every one of our major defence programs is in disarray or scheduled to deliver capability so far into the future that it's in the realm of, realm of science fiction? Do you tell them we have no submarine program at all? And if we don't lease a submarine 
and continue to pretend we can make them in Adelaide, we won't get a submarine before 2040 at the earliest. Now, I'm sorry to say to you, Prime Minister, it's worse than that. Right now, our Prime Minister at this moment is in Paris to talk about submarines and climate change, where he's telling 34 OECD members, and this is in a a copy of the speech that we've received, quote, I firmly believe we can solve the biggest challenges of our time while laying the groundwork for long-term economic security and shared prosperity. Is that hubris? This is not punching above your weight. This is talking above your weight. He will boast about Australia being, quote, a major energy resource and food exporter. Well, that's right. Export the energy resources so that other countries can have cheap power, but deny it to his own people. He's going to tell the 34 OECD members that, quote, the fight against climate change must be at the heart of global cooperation. Our goal is for Australia to be a renewable energy superpower, unquote. PM, why don't you take a plane trip since you're going everywhere, steer the plane towards Amsterdam and start mouthing all this climate change nonsense? You should already know, Prime Minister, that Germany, under a green coalition, is now firing up mothballed coal-fired generators because their dear old renewables can't do the job. Austria is following Germany, reverting to coal power, and then the Netherlands. Now, the Dutch government is, or was, talking this same nonsense on carbon dioxide emissions. But when animals poo, what hits the ground is full of nitrogen. The Dutch government plans to cut greenhouse gas nitrogen by as much as 70% and is expecting farmers to achieve a 40% drop in emissions. That would require 30% fewer cattle. The Netherlands is the world's second largest agricultural exporter, and now their farmers are being targeted. Thousands of tractor-driving farmers are demonstrating in the town of Stroh, which is east of Amsterdam, arguing simply that the future of farmers is being destroyed. You see, the generation of electricity only contributes 32% towards greenhouse gas emissions, transports 18%, and agriculture is responsible for 14% of greenhouse gas emissions. So the emissions from transport and agriculture are 32%, about the same as for electricity generation. So what happens to agriculture here, as in the Netherlands? Reduce the emissions in line with the Paris target, and you'll have to reduce the number of animals. Our total emissions in Australia from agriculture are about 75 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent. Reduce that by 28%, which is our goal, or it was the Morrison goal. I mean, Albanese wants 43%, but just take 28%. You'd have to go down to 55 million tonnes of emissions. Well, beef grazing is responsible for 36 million tonnes, sheep 14 million, dairy cows nine, pigs two. So who's got the guts to say to our agricultural sector, reduce your herd sizes? Our Prime Minister's in Paris. This is what this absurd Paris Agreement means for agriculture. Get rid of 28 million beasts, dairy cows, beef cattle, pigs and sheep by 2030. Prime Minister, head to Amsterdam. Have a yarn with the thousands of farmers who are driving their tractors across the roads and highways in the Netherlands, and they'll have a different view entirely from the rhetoric that you're delivering right now to the 34 suited OECD members. Fighting climate change must be at the heart of global cooperation. Okay, Prime Minister. Tell the agriculture sector and the transport sector what that will mean for them.
And if you can't, change your story. Well, look, it hasn't taken long for Peter Dutton to get into stride with Anthony Albanese arguing that he seeks political unity and that the climate wars must be over. But he wants now to legislate for a 43% emissions reduction target by 2030. As Nick Cater, the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre, has said, and I quote, Labor's uncontested thought bubble is about to be given the force of law in an early act of parliamentary grandstanding, unquote. Now, I should point out at this juncture that Nick Cater, who you'll hear from in just a moment, will be joining us here at Australian Digital Holdings with his very own Friday night show. Now, you'll enjoy him and we look forward to hearing more from him and the very good work that he does. But he joins me tonight on this other issue. Nick, thank you for your time. I mean, none of this was debated in the election campaign. And you make the point that if you wanted to win, I suppose, the hearts and minds of the regions and the suburbs, don't mention this stuff where it doesn't rate. Well, that's right. And, and, and look, the coalition, you know, deliberately pulled back on this. They could, they could have attacked uh, Albanese on this energy target, just as they did quite effectively last time round on their 45% energy target. But they tactically, for tactical reasons, they decided not to. A lot of us are beginning to think that was probably a bit of a mistake, that Labor should have at least been put under pressure over this, been under pressure to, to explain where this magic figure of 43% came from and, and how on earth they're going to get there without wrecking the economy. Those are legitimate questions, and I think that uh, Albanese and uh, the now Energy Minister, Chris uh, uh, Bowen, got a very easy ride on How that. divisive, though, is this going to be uh, at a time when Albo's talking about unity? How do you think the parliamentary numbers will stack up about this? Well, I think Peter Dutton very sensibly has said he's having no bar of this, that, that the idea that they have a, a mandate for this policy when less than a third of the country voted for them and it was hardly spoken about is ludicrous. I think Dutton is right to leave them on their own over this. And if they want to legislate 43%, then they're going to have to negotiate with the Greens. And the Greens, of course, want to go far further than that. So yes. it'll be a difficult... A difficult... Just, just take that point up, Nick if they're going to negotiate with the Greens. So what do you think the trade-off might the Greens seek before they offer their support? Well, the Greens will be seeking an assurance that this is a flaw, not a, not a target, that it will go higher. Uh, and they'll also be, be seeking uh, to, to put in place, to firm up some of the bans on gas and things like that, which yeah. are our real problem at the moment, Alan. Absolutely. A real problem. I mean, uh, the, 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 what's happened in Victoria in particular and New South Wales to some extent in banning exploration and exploitation of gas is really at the heart of our mm. problem right now. I mean, as we're facing these huge energy prices here, you know, in, in an Australian winter. That's because there just is not the gas. We're no. crying out for the gas which no. we need to firm well, up the nor, renewables. Nor, nor the renewables. Mm. So, Nick, how sensible is this when the industrialised world is in chaos over energy? No one was more committed to the renewables myth than Angela Merkel, setting absurd targets for renewable energy in Germany, closing down coal-fired power stations. Now they've got a coalition government over there with the Greens and they've been forced to reboot coal-fired generators. So, and here we are pretending there isn't a problem. That's right. The same's happening in Austria and in other European yeah. countries. There's been a distinct change in the debate in Europe and in the United States for that matter, as a reality- And with Boris Johnson. Yeah, as the reality hits that you can't just go magically 
100% uh, renewables that you need something else and you're not going to rely on Russian gas if you've got any sense. No. So there is a real resetting of the argument in Europe, which makes it even stranger, I think, yes. that Labor hasn't taken the opportunity here to sort of reset yes. its arguments. But I mean, Germany's passing legislation too, just like Albo wants to. But that legislation in Germany is to validate the burning of more coal for power generation. Yeah, and it's supported by the Green Party there, yeah. incidentally. Uh, there is definitely a feeling that the reality has caught up with the Europeans, but it hasn't quite reached our shores yet. I mean, now they're saying legislate for 40% renewables, but absolutely no indication of how you will firm those renewables. I mean, we can, you know, Alan, we can put wind in here, wind in there, wind upon wind upon wind, but there will always be points in the day and indeed points in the year when the wind's not blowing. What do we do at that point? That's when it gets expensive. I mean, Boeing's all, he's correct to point out that renewable energy is very cheap. It can be very, in fact, the, the, the price of renewable energy in, in, in the middle of the day yeah. is often a That's negative it. price. They yes. can't give the stuff away, literally. That's it. it. It's when we get to the end of the day, when people come home on a cold evening and they want to put on the heaters and so forth. And there's and, none. That's, that's the bit you've got yes. to deal with. And, and there's no sense that, that, that Boeing is in any way tackling with that reality. Now, just come back. This is a very important point. So basically, all this stuff goes into the grid when the grid already has coal-fired power and gas-fired power and so on. So there's a surfeit of energy, say, in the middle of the day, which forces the price down, mm. which actually makes it uncompetitive, uncompetitive for coal-fired power. But at night time, as you say, when the sun ain't shining and the wind ain't blowing, uh, we've got a deficit in, in energy. And they're not prepared to concede this. No, and one of the things that's driving this is a massive increase in rooftop solar, Alan. Mm. It's, it's hit a record investment in rooftop solar in this country for the fifth year running last year. But they keep saying we need more investment in renewables. <laughs> I mean, Germany, Germany has invested in renewables up to their eyeballs, and yet there they are in all sorts of trouble with energy supply. Well, the engineers right now are having trouble connecting some of this renewable energy to the grid because they've got to keep the grid stable. They have to turn non-synchronous power into synchronous power. They have to keep the momentum going. Otherwise, the voltage fluctuates and all, 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 all sorts of things go wrong. They have real technical problems right now with the amount of, of, of renewables yes. actually keeping the system running. And the more you put in the greater those problems become, unless you can put in some way of firming that power, yes. either, by, uh, either by hydro batteries or gas. And out of those three options, gas is the one that, that we, we can yes. get on stream. But we've, much got, we've got 2,000 years of coal under our feet. Now, how on earth are you going to get an appropriate price for electricity when Labor and many people in the Liberal Party want to force coal-fired power out of the system, that is, reduce the availability of energy, that surely can only have one consequence, jack up the price. Yes, exactly, Alan. And this is, you know, we've, this is the end of a decade-long campaign orchestrated by the green movement around the world deliberately to target coal and get it out of the system. And we're now at a point where it's very hard to get any financing for coal mines, let alone coal-fired yes. power stations. Yes. Uh, they, they are succeeding in their aim. I mean, I'd love to see uh, a, 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 a efficient 
yes. coal installed in this a, country. A heli coal-fired power a station. A heli coal-fired power yeah. station in Queensland where Matt Canavan's talking about yes. it. It's fantastic. You've got to get a state and government. And there's 325 the of them around the world. Yeah. They're doing it in Vietnam, South Korea, in India and so on. Bjorn Lomborg, as you know, and my viewers know, widely internationally respected, not a climate denier, but he said only this week, the climate policy approach of trying to push consumers and businesses away from fossil fuels with price spikes is causing pain with little climate payoff. He mm. said, and solar and wind are still only capable of meeting a fraction of global electricity needs. Now, Nick, we've seen massive taxpayer subsidies and political support for renewables all around the world. But in 2020, as Bjorn Lomborg says, solar and wind delivered 9% of global electricity. When are Albanese and Bowen going to tell the nation this? Yeah, and if you want to put more renewables in the system, well, you're going to have to you're going to have to substantially increase the strength of the grid and and the connections around the country, and you're going to have to put in backup. You're going to have to put in things like Snowy Hydro, which is going ahead, as you know. Okay, fine, but who pays for that? But we, who we don't pays have, for that? We don't, we don't have transmission lines to get renewables from A to B into the grid. I mean, where is the business case, Nick, for 43%? A case which will tell us, well, what price will the economy pay? What price will individuals pay to get to this destination? There is no business case. No, you do, you, it, it's, it's dreaming, Alan. It's market dreaming. They've looked at this and they've, they've modelled it and they said the market's going to behave in this way. We know the market never goes according to those plans. That's why coal is disappearing out of the system much more, much more rapidly than anybody was predicting five years ago and why we've got this acute crisis building yes. now. Uh, we know that you know gas has not come onto the market as quickly as we wanted. You know the the the, the Narrabri project, for instance, now pushed back to 25, 1920, uh, 2026. We've got proposals to bring in gas in in in. Uh, in the Illawarra, in a new terminal. Well, they haven't even got approval for that yet. You know, everything gets pushed Absolutely. into the different distance. Uh, and they, they seem to be working on this ideal world, almost a sort of utopian formula. Yeah. Well, the world doesn't work like that. No. In the end, we have to do things in, in, in practical ways yes. and ways that make sense. I mean, just so that our viewers understand, it's a simple story. Labor says, must transition tomorrow to renewables. Get rid of the rest. Now. There is no understanding of the massive problems of transitioning to renewables too quickly, if indeed that were ever possible, Nick. Yeah, and look, I just don't think they're being honest with the public, Alan. No. They're, they're, they're trying to make out they have a, a perfect answer to a very easy yeah. question. It's not. It's a very complex question. It needs some honesty. It needs some discussion. It really needs a discussion, I think, about gas and to say, well, look, Gas will be part of our system for a long mm. way time to come. In which fact, is a fossil fuel, <laughs> it, exactly. But but it's a it, lower emissions yeah. than coal, and and you know if you're using it to, to back up renewables rather than running it. But all why the time. can't we have a high efficiency, low emission coal-fired power stations? There's 325 being built around the world to take advantage of what's under our feet. Look. We're always running out of time, Nick, and I know you'll cover these things when you come on to the program here, but one final question. Why do you think the coalition has not, to this point, sought to separate themselves from this Labor nonsense? Well, I think we'll see this in the parliamentary debate. I think they'll be forced to. Uh, but. Uh, 
you know, it, the, as we know the problems in the Liberal Party that they've been playing to two separate constituencies, yes. this inner city constituency who really are, you know, quite well off. They don't care too much. They're not too bothered about increases in energy prices and so forth. And they can they can have these luxury policies, if you like. Mm. And then the rest of the country where these things actually count, where mm. it means jobs, yeah. it means it means wages, it they'll means keeping it. the lights on. You they'll know? pay for it. Yeah. They'll pay for it. Good to talk to you, Nick. Okay. And to um, our viewers, there's the man. He'll be shortly joining us for his own program, one hour on Friday night. That's the man there, Nick Cater. Great to talk to you, Nick. Thanks. Look forward to you joining us. Thank you. There he is. Nick Cater. Look, just let me follow through on what Nick Cater was saying then, because whether the Albanese government elected on a 32% primary vote is prepared to accept it or not, the reality is, as you heard from Nick Cater for one person, there's an army of well-read and well-informed commentators and scholars who, to put it simply, say two things. One, we're facing an energy crisis. Legislating carbon dioxide emissions will prove a nightmare. But John Anderson said last night, there is no debate. That was the point that Nick made. There wasn't during the election. I've referred often, as you know, to Bjorn Lomborg, who's the world-renowned authority, who said this week, and I repeat, the climate policy approach of trying to push consumers and business away from fossil fuels with price spikes is causing pain with little climate payoff. He said, solar and wind are still only capable of meeting a fraction of global energy needs. Now, I was thinking only this morning of that very amusing poem, said Hanrahan, and it ends, the poem ends, we'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan, before the year is out. Well, Hanrahan's right. I'll talk to Terry McCran shortly, but we have an outfit called the Australian Energy Market Operator with a budget of 250 million. It's been around since 2009. Its charter is, quote, to shape a better energy future for all Australians, unquote. But are these outfits truly independent? or committed to singing from the government's song sheet. The chief executive is a bloke called Daniel Westerman. He speaks as if he were Chris Bowen or Anthony Albanese. And he said this week, quote, Australia must accelerate a move away from coal to renewables, unquote. This is what the government wants to hear. But then come the qualifications that Australia must approve more than $10 billion of transmission projects to escape the ongoing threat of blackouts and high power prices amid a national energy crisis. Now, if logic is to mean anything, this bloke bells the cat. So we've got to have more than $10 billion of transmission projects to escape a national energy crisis. We don't have $10 billion of transmission projects. It therefore follows that we will not escape what Terry McCran and I and Nick Cater have warned of for years, the threat of blackouts and higher power prices leading to a national energy crisis. And this bloke Westerman is singing from the Albanese Bowen song sheet saying the country was undergoing a complex, rapid and irreversible change to its energy system. Well, it's not. That's what the government hopes for. So again, this bloke from the AEMO, AEMO offers the qualification that to get to this mythical irreversible change, we would need a ninefold increase in wind and solar capacity by 2050. This bloke from the Australian energy market operator Westerman is just repeating the government's mantra. Yet it's meant to be an independent body with a budget of 250 million to quote, shape a better energy future, unquote. But it now says that coal and gas fired power is volatile. And he talks about cheap renewables. Well, where's the evidence of this when Europe 
is turning on its coal-fired power to accommodate, to accommodate the fact that the renewables, with trillions of dollars of taxpayer subsidies and all the hype and hysteria in demonising coal, yet old King Coal is called upon again. And then the AEMO says, I think recent events in Australia and overseas have really just underscored the need for urgent investment in renewables to provide the most affordable, secure and reliable energy, unquote. I'll see if we can get this bloke on the program, but they don't come on because they can't sustain the argument, you see. Recent events in Australia and overseas? Are you kidding me? No one has been more committed, as I said earlier, to renewables, financially and politically, than Germany. And they're in an absolute mess, hoping that rebooting coal-fired power will get them out of trouble. We're exporting our coal to Vietnam, India, Japan and South Korea, amongst others. Yes, coal-fired power in Australia is unreliable because the infrastructure is old and worn out. But why would someone invest in a new coal-generating capacity when government and handmaidens like the AEMO want coal out of the equation? But Japan, South Korea, India and Vietnam are building brand new, high-efficiency, low-emission coal-fired power stations. That's what we should be doing with 2,000 years of this magnificent resource under our feet. Instead, this outfit, the Australian Energy Market Operator, which tells us we'll need a nine-fold increase in wind and solar capacity, is also boasting that two-thirds of all coal capacity will be shut down by 2030 under their plans. Hanrahan had it right, didn't he? We'll all be ruined. Look, I always enjoy talking to Terry McCran. He's been a highly respected economic commentator for years in this country, but he writes and speaks with simplicity and clarity. He's been having a bit of a post-election break, but I thought we'd have a yarn with him tonight about where Australia is heading under new management. Terry, thank you for your time. It seems the Prime Minister has spent more time on a plane than on the ground. How do you think he's going? Great to be with you again, Alan. Uh, it's great to be speaking to the people that rely on your leadership. Thank you. Uh, the, well, he's obviously engaged in the most extraordinary globetrotting that we've ever seen from a new prime minister. And I guess I'm in two minds about it, Alan. One, that he really should be at home providing the leadership and the direction. It's not exactly as if we're living in a, in a nirvana right now. We've got power prices, as you appreciate, through the roof. Gas is most uncertain. Uh, the the inflation rate is picking up sharply. Interest rates are going to go up. That's going to hurt all homeowners. And there we have a prime minister who thinks the most important thing to do is to go to talk fests around the world. Now, that's the question mark. Offsetting that, I have to say, Alan, and it's not only the prime minister, a number of ministers are off their globe trotting. Uh, at least when they're away, they can't do too much mischief. <laughs> so I'm sort of in two minds about how to, how to uh, characterise it. Let, 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 look, let's go to this new Treasurer, Chalmers, who has inherited a mess when you're trying to manage a trillion dollars plus of debt. I'm not certain that the Finance Minister, Katie Gallagher, is the best person for that job. What do you make of both of them? Well, Katie Gallagher is certainly no uh, equivalent to the prime ministers we've had in the past, mm. and most particularly Peter Walsh, mm. who became eventually the finance minister in the Hawke government to yep. Paul Keating. 
And it really was Peter Walsh that really set in train a lot of the things in terms of restraints on government spending in the mid-80s that carried through pretty far into the 21st century. Mm. Uh, so, no, all Katie Gallagher has been has been the mayor of a large, rather large city That's up it. until this point. And these days, as you appreciate, Alan, what mayors, local councils do, what mayors do is their own form of grandstanding. Mm. They don't get the garbage collected adequately and on time. They don't keep the streets clean. They don't get rid of graffiti. What they do is grandstand. We've just seen that most immediately uh, with the Moreland City Council in, in Melbourne changing its name because there was this perceived connection with slavery. Yeah. I mean, well, we've I'd got, like local We've got it here, in, we've got it here in Sydney. Terry, we've got it here in Sydney. This garbage piled up everywhere in Sydney, and then they say, oh, exactly, staff shortages. Exactly. Do you see a, do you sense a Whitlam element in the new Prime Minister with not a lot of interest in the economic reality or the economic detail? I mean, the failure to know the cash rate and the jobless rate at the beginning of the campaign couldn't be passed off as a memory lapse. He just didn't know. Uh, where do you put this? Well, exactly, Alan. It's much more than he just didn't know. He really isn't that interested. And you're exactly right. That was the prime characteristic of Gough Whitlam, which was that he really had no interest in the economy. He had really no interest in what the reality of the economic state of play was. And uh, that was a case where, you know, he was like the, the, the cat was away all the time and the mice, as we know, mm played rampantly oh, yeah. through the Whitlam period. Oh, Mr. Kemlani and Co. had a picnic. So if they are tend to model themselves, that. as they say, on the Hawke and Keating approach to government, how do you think they're equipped in knowledge, ability, tactics, strategy to achieve the Hawke and Keating results? Well, the, 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 the answer in that is in what they've already demonstrated, those ministers that were there yeah. in, the, in the shock a uh, uh, horror of the Rudd and Gillard years. Now, Jim Chalmers wasn't a minister back then, and I have to say, I I give him a small tick so far in starting slowly. He he's sort of taken himself out of the, the the focus for the first month, and has tried to suck up knowledge from Treasury and Reserve Bank. Now, you might say, Alan, and I wouldn't disagree with you that there's not a lot of knowledge necessarily Absolute. to be gained from those two. Oh, I mean, Treasury. <laughs> the Treasury and the Reserve Bank, Terry, well, you and I have discussed this for years. I mean, both of them are wrong more often than they're right. And they've both embraced some of these mantras which are so destructive. Yeah. The most important, of course, is climate change. Yes, I mean, the Reserve Bank governor was talking about a general pay rise starting at, with a three in it when he actually opposed public sector price caps and only recently seemed to be urging that they be lifted. What do you make of this 5.1%? Will the government be able to limit well, the 5.1% to just the very well, low-paid workers? No, no, of course not, Alan. I mean, and this is the biggest mistake up front that the new government has made by locking in their commitment to the 5.1% ostensibly, supposedly only for low-paid workers, as you say, but in the, in the reality of those huge shortages across the board in for labour, for quality labour, and the reality of inflation, which is just going to go higher, it's not going to stay at 5%, it's already gone to 7%, it could well go higher than that, to expect workers to voluntarily not chase high wage rises 
when for the first time in 20 years they've actually got market power yes, because yes. of shortages. Yes. Uh, we, so that's the biggest, you know, they made Absolutely. the mistake of committing to the 5% and the biggest risk we face is we get a wage price spiral. If Absolutely. we get a wage price spiral, it's terminal for the government, mm. but it's even more terminal for the economy. For the economy. If we're talking about productivity, how do you get productivity when you can't employ the workforce you need? Well, I think, and I think you'll agree with us, Alan, there's a far more fundamental need, and that's cheap, reliable and plentiful power. Good on you. Anybody that understands the reality of history knows that we went from the 18th century to the 20th century by finding and distributing electricity in, in, unlimited, you know, in un, unlimited demand, to meet unlimited demand. That's what drives productivity, energy, power and the availability. So you can't get productivity by just waving a magic wand and saying we want productivity. Uh, but yes, you're right, it's also having a skilled workforce. But now just come back to this because this is a massive issue, this energy issue. So they're going to legislate for this back of the envelope, I mean, make it up as you go along, 43% uh, carbon dioxide reduction in emissions by 2030. Where's the business case? Where are the business models? Where is there any issue well, about what this will cost? There's none of this stuff. Well, and again, Alan, I don't think many people appreciate that we're not just talking about a 43% reduction in CO2 emissions by the electricity generation industry. I mean, that's the easy bit. It's, it's also completely insane, as we appreciate but it's the easy bit. You can close coal-fired power stations and <laughs> sort of replace them with wind and solar, but you've also got to get that 43% everywhere else in the economy. And that's that's the part that really is is beyond insanity. Yeah, yeah everywhere uh, else means the idea every, everywhere else means agriculture and transport exactly. uh, with emissions. And we've exactly. seen these protests in the Netherlands and overall. I mean, and manufacturing. Manufacturing. Very interesting, very interesting Alan. I don't know whether you've read the detail of this new report from AEMO, which came out this morning. I did, yeah. But they gave the, they gave the game away in, in, a, in a really bizarre way. They talk about building a weather-powered mm. electricity generation system. Yes. A weather-powered electricity system. Can you ask me something more well, insane than well, that to well, say we want they, to go back to relying on weather? Just while you're on that, aren't these outfits meant to be independent, objective? They That energy market operator reads to me as if he's just reading off the Bowen Albanese script. Well, he is exactly. I mean, he's taken as his mandate, working out how to deliver the 43% reductions and move entirely. We're talking about entirely to wind and solar as the as the and a little bit of hydro as the basis for generating electricity but there's another dirty little secret in in the report which is not highlighted that he talks about needing 10 gigawatts yes. of gas fired generation yes that is five hazelwoods that is five liddells can you imagine this government endorsing building even one That's Got gas, gas fired power station. That's why I'm talking Far to you. That's why I'm talking to you. I mean, how do you make energy prices cheaper when you take out of the whole equation the most productive source of energy, namely coal fired power? Now, they want to eliminate all that, demonise it. It's all got to go. Bant says it's got to go now. 
Albanese and Coast that's got to be gone yeah. by 2030. How the hell do you A, supply enough energy and B, at an appropriate price when you take a very significant component of energy production out of the equation? Well, you don't, Alan. I mean, it's plain and simple. You don't. I mean, you could, as a second best, replace all the coal-fired power stations with gas-fired power stations or nuclear or some mix of that. But nuclear is completely off the agenda yes. and gas-fired is, you know, are we really going to mm. see this government authorising new gas-fired power stations? I don't think so. No. So the coal-fired stations are going to close. Mm. Uh, we're going to try and cover the gap with with more and more wind turbines. They're talking about nine times as many wind turbines and solar panels scattered across the landscape. I mean, that's it's, it's, yep. that's an extraordinary distillation of the landscape and battery, you know, more and more battery. They've got no idea. Look, just before you go, we always run out of time. We've got to talk to you more often. I just want to come back to this point because you and I have criticised the Reserve Bank, Lowe & Co, for wimping out on earlier interest rate increases. I've been concerned about those borrowers who believed the utterances of Lowe in November when he said it's still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate won't be before 2024. And he said, I find it difficult to understand why rate rises are being priced in the next year or in early 2023. Now the bloke's saying, oh, get ready for interest rate rises going through the roof. Are these people credible anymore, Terry? Well, a very big question mark over that, Alan, a very big question mark. And I mean, I liked it more when reserve bankers didn't say anything. They just, they shut up, shut up and did their job. Mm. Trying to predict interest rates is, is a mug's game for, for people like me and for the reserve bank to get into the governor to get into that space and in effect promise not to raise yes. rates. That's it came very close to being a promise, and I think people out there were entitled to believe that it was that's a right. promise. That's right. uh, I think there's a very serious issue no, I, that's I going to come up in the next, next, I agree. next year or two. We'll leave it there, Terry. We must talk again, but keep up the wonderful work you do. Compulsory reading. You can read Terry McCran in News Limited. Talks clearly, simply, and of course, not politically correct, which is what we love about Terry. He doesn't say what they want to hear. He tells them what actually is the reality of life, and you've just heard that now. Many thanks, Terry. Very grateful. There he is, Terry McCran, one of Australia's leading economic commentators. Look, it is appropriate that the world focuses on the atrocities in Ukraine, the consequence of the terrifying ambition of the Soviet butcher, Vladimir Putin. Again, Anthony Albanese has been strong on rhetoric, telling NATO leaders, splendidly protected from the consequences of war, that what's happening in Ukraine is, quote, uniting the democratic world, unquote. I think the democratic world is having itself on because Putin ploughs on. And as John Anderson said last night, global order is under siege. So I don't know what uniting the democratic world really means. But so far, the same countries pretending to fight Putin in Ukraine are filling his coffers with money that helps him sustain the fight because Europe continues to buy energy from Russia. So, Prime Minister, the so-called united democratic world is at this point fairly impotent. War experts say that the key to this crisis has been the failure to arm the Ukrainians sufficiently to deter the Russians. That sanctions aren't a deterrent, weapons are. And we haven't given Ukrainians enough of them. Putin, in what can only be described as a heinous war crime, 
has attacked a shopping centre in the middle of the city of Kremenchuk, which is only 270 kilometres southeast of Kiev as you head towards the Black Sea. 18 people killed, orange flames billowing from a civilian wreckage. This is a city of 220,000 people. And this so-called united democratic world stands by and endures Russian lies that the bombing of innocent civilians, nothing more than a terrorist attack, quote, was a provocation by Ukraine. You see, in the geopolitical world, if you're gonna talk tough, you better be able to deliver. And you can't be selective in your so-called protection of democracy. Not a squeak from anyone about Myanmar, but the democratically elected leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, has been transferred from house arrest to prison, solitary confinement. A 77-year-old Nobel laureate on trial for endless trumped-up charges and could face a sentence of more than 150 years in jail. Her lawyers have been banned from speaking to the media. Journalists barred from her trial. And a mongrel Marxist junta denying requests by foreign diplomats to meet her. Where are these world leaders who say they are committed to democracy? It's only rhetoric. And one courageous woman is left to swing in the political breeze. We've got cricketers playing in Sri Lanka. The same Sri Lanka is in complete collapse and no country or organisation is willing to sell fuel to this debt-ridden outfit. As I've told you, Sri Lanka is run by the Rajapaksa family, one of them's president. The brother was until a month ago prime minister and finance minister, but his son is still the youth and sports minister. His lawyer is the justice minister. The president himself is the defence minister. The eldest brother is the irrigation minister. The nephew is the agriculture minister. The Rajapaksas have rorted the country. As I said last week, why the hell would we be giving $50 million in aid to a country whose government is riddled with corruption and nepotism? Around the cricket ground are a stack of empty gas bottles. Sri Lankans have assembled the bottles to demonstrate the extreme shortage of basic goods following the economic collapse. The government has banned the sale of fuel to private vehicles. There's an incongruity here. Cricket teams, broadcasters and tourists, on the one hand, looking at the site of luxury in a country which is on its knees because democracy is dead. Economic and political chaos in Sri Lanka. The Prime Minister, Mahinda Rajapaksa, resigned a month ago, replaced by a permanent and divisive figure in the Sri Lankan, well, he's been in Sri Lankan politics forever, Ranil Wickremesinghe. Now, in a speech to Parliament last Wednesday, Wickremesinghe said that the state-owned Ceylon Petroleum Corporation was US $700 million in debt, which prompts the question, who's been ripping it off? Wickremesinghe told the Parliament, as a result, no country or organisation in the world is willing to provide fuel to us, fuel to Sri Lanka. Can you believe it? But there's now a four-day working week for public servants to allow them time, cop this, to grow their own food crops, presumably starve in the meantime. The World Food Program has issued a dire warning about Sri Lanka that nearly 5 million of its citizens, 22% of the population, are food insecure and need of help. So where's all the money gone? India has already provided over US $4 billion in emergency loans and is now saying no more. Of course, this makes a crippled Sri Lanka ripe for Chinese intervention. But Sri Lanka already owes over US $7 billion 
to the Bank of China and the China Development Bank. That debt accrued under the Rajapaksas, which I suppose is why one of the brothers continues to hang on to the presidency. My point is this. Our Prime Minister is saying that the atrocities in Ukraine have united the democratic world. Now, with hubris in full cry, he told NATO after the attack on civilians in Kremenchuk, quote, it's one of the reasons why I'm here at NATO. The world looks at what's going on and collectively condemns it. Well, that's true, Prime Minister. But the reality is the democratic world has been found wanting in its response to the invasion of Ukraine. It's silent at the treatment of the democratically elected Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar and gives $50 million, we do, to a Sri Lanka that's absolutely broke because democracy is dead and corruption is alive. So all this rubbing shoulders with NATO leaders and talking to the OECD in Paris is unfortunately nothing more than ego tripping. The talk is cheap. Action is completely absent. Well, before we go, probably one of the most insufferable politicians to inhabit the United Kingdom is the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon. She leads the Scottish National Party. You could be forgiven for thinking she's a broken record. That is, her only utterances and those of her colleagues are the same thing. Scotland should be independent. This is despite the total economic chaos such a decision would unleash on the country. This political party, the SNP, are a clown show. Not content with the last referendum in 2014, where the Scots voted against independence in a ballot sanctioned by the British government, this NNP mob, fighting to remain relevant, continue to this day. That was supposed to put the matter to rest for a generation, but no, the good old Brexit strategy kicked in, which is a method increasingly used by elites. That is, keep making the public go out and vote until you exhaust them and get the results you're after. Let's hope the public are awake up to this. I think they are. Sturgeon's on the nose in Scotland and her party has copped one scandal after another. So this is the distraction tactic. Support for the SNP is slipping as they more and more look like Hiru Anoda. He is, of course, the Japanese soldier who hid out in the jungles 29 years after the Imperial Japanese Army surrendered and continued waging a war that was long over. Well, why am I telling you this? Yesterday, Sturgeon declared that a new independence referendum would take place on October 19, 2023. As the Unionist parties indicated, all this while Scotland's schools continue to be the worst performing in the UK and their health system is deteriorating. So the grand idea is separating from the UK, a one-way ticket to economic struggle for Scotland. The problem for Sturgeon, though, and her declaration is the Scotland Act the law that underpins the Scottish Parliament, which stipulates that the Union of England and Scotland of 1707 is a matter reserved for the Westminster Parliament alone. That means no referendum can take place without Westminster's consent. So, constitutionally, her announcement is meaningless. More proof that her sound bites are vacuous. But now the Scottish Government has asked the Supreme Court to rule whether holding a ballot next year would be within the Scottish Parliament's powers. With most legal experts predicting the Supreme Court would side with the UK government in any ruling, Ms Sturgeon has said her backup plan was to fight the next general election on the single issue of independence and use it as a de facto referendum. 
One word sums all this up, desperate. Just as in Australia, outlier politicians seem to ter- determined to continue to divide us. Unifying language seems to be a thing of the past. Over here, we've got this indigenous voice to parliament. That's got to be resolved, despite there being a record number of indigenous MPs in the parliament. So why is such a voice needed? People pursuing this are paving the way for more division in what is already a very divided and often demoralised world. Sturgeon and politicians of her ilk need to be sent packing. Well, on that note, as the two runnings would say, that's it from me. I'll see you next week on ADH-TV, the last voice, remember, of common sense. Good night.